Would you stand with me as we read, please? And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he, ans- but he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, Do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying these, uh, this to him, he said, Follow me. The word of the Lord. Okay, I'm on. (laughs) All right. Two weeks ago, we uh, finished our sermon series in the book of Job. And Ryan remarked uh, in the sermon that even before before God shows up and even afterwards, there's kind of this dissatisfaction with the way his story closed. There's this kind of desire for more. You know, the way God showed up, he just showed up in a way that was like, that's it. That's the end of all this time that we've spent. We, we arrive at this and we want more. Well, one, I can share in that dissatisfaction with you. But two, I think that uh, we're supposed to feel that dissatisfaction. We're supposed to want a little more. And part of we can't really understand Job's story until we get to Jesus. 
So the question is, you know, what does happen when God shows up? And this morning, we're starting a new sermon series called Following Jesus About Discipleship. And it's a great follow-up to the book of Job because when God does actually show up, finally and fully in the flesh, one of the first things he says is, follow me. Discipleship is what happens when God shows up. He calls people to follow. And as we do, uh, as we look at discipleship, we're going to look at it through the eyes of, of Peter, perhaps the most well-known disciple. He, um, we know many stories about his failures, and today, uh, well, really in the whole series, it's going to be a little bit different in that today is the only time we're going to be in the Gospels as we talk about discipleship. I'm not going to go through the Gospels and look at all these stories. We're going to take this, uh, the betrayal and failure of Peter and his restoration and allow that to be a launch pad for us as we then see how this moment, this instant, shaped Peter in a way to how he views the church, how he views Jesus and who we are called to be as followers of him. And Peter's a good one to go through or to look through his eyes because he has a Job-like moment. Remember at the end of Job, Job says, Before I'd only heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Now my eyes have seen who you truly are. Perhaps even though we're dissatisfied, we can say this one thing about the book of Job, is that Job lays a foundation for us to understand what happens when God shows up. Lays a foundation for us, and we see that same foundation with Peter. And part of that foundation is two things, that when God shows up, there's a humbling but there's also a comfort. There's humbling and comfort. And we see that with Job, and we will see it with Peter, that in his defining encounter with Jesus, he's both humbled and yet he's comforted. So I would say this morning that if we learn anything from this story, at the heart of discipleship, at the heart of our walk with Jesus, requires those two things that we are both humbled, but also comforted. How do we get there? Well, one, I think we can all say uh, that before Jesus could truly follow Peter, he had to be humbled. We know Peter. Arrogant, he was brash, kind of a know-it-all, kind of a blowhard. He had to be humbled before he could truly follow Jesus, even after all this time. He'd been following Jesus, sure, but he wasn't really following Jesus yet. He was following him with his feet, but he wasn't following Jesus with his heart. There's a big difference there. And I think we know some of that tension in our own lives. I think we know, uh, we know that difference. Our feet lead us in here. Week after week, we go through those motions. But there's something about when we leave and throughout the week that our hearts are completely unmoved by the gospel, unmotivated. And there's something about our hearts that Jesus is not yet captured. Part of the reason Peter is on, uh, isn't yet following Jesus with his heart is they have two completely different agendas. One, uh, you see it throughout different pages, or uh, the pages of the Gospels where um, Peter will be, you know, kind of opens his mouth and Jesus is like, yeah, no, that's not true whatsoever. And even rebukes him at times. One of the hardest rebukes is whenever Jesus is saying that I am going to, the, I'm going to die. And Peter's like, I would never let you die. I would get in the way and stop it. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, adversary. Those are harsh words. But 
he's on a completely different page than Jesus. He really doesn't know what Jesus is actually up to. He doesn't really know where he's following Jesus. And it's about his kingdom versus Jesus' kingdom. He's wanting Jesus, like all the disciples, to establish Israel as the world power again, to restore Israel as the superpower that they're destined to be, to establish his kingdom on the earth. And as we get to this place in Mark, they just had the Passover of Holy Week, the night before Jesus died, where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. But the whole conversation among the disciples is, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom that Jesus is going to establish? Who will ascend to the highest amount of power and glory? And they're just not on the same page as Jesus, so much so that whenever they leave and go to the Mount of Olives and they're at the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says, actually, in Mark, 4, 20, Mark 14, 27, he says, all of you will abandon me. You all have no idea. All of you will leave me. When the shepherd is struck, the sheep will scatter. And you're all going to leave me. And Peter, self-confident, self-assured, that he is the most faithful one of all, he says, not me, not me. I am the most faithful one. Even though all these others would fall away, even though all the other disciples are weak, maybe weak, not me. That's not in me. I will follow you. And Jesus just tells him the truth, and he looks right at Peter, and he says, Peter, before the night's over, you will betray me three times. Three times you will betray me. Peter says, no, no, I won't. That's not true, Jesus. I will never, ever do that. You don't understand my devotion. You understand how confident I am in my devotion to you, that even if you die, I will die with you. Bold claims and ones that are completely untrue. Before Peter could truly follow Jesus with his heart, he had to have that image of himself and that pride and self-confidence utterly destroyed. It had to be completely destroyed before Jesus had the devotion that he requires. And it's the same as you and me. That there's a pride and an image we have and a way that we think about ourselves that's keeping us from truly following Jesus in the way that he asks and the way that he calls and it has to be destroyed. And it's destroyed by being confronted with who we truly are. It's destroyed by, for Peter, it was destroyed by being confronted with who he truly was. And the only way that our false images of ourselves and our ideas and our self-confidence is shattered and destroyed, only ways, is through failure and pain. It's the only thing that rattles us enough and shakes us enough to wake up and to see us, to see who we are in reality. And that's true for Peter, that he had a great failure. And you know the story as it goes, that he's following Jesus after he's arrested, probably the only one following him. And he's sitting there really probably self-confident. He's like, yeah, see, everybody else fell away. After he was arrested, they all scattered, but not me. I'm following Jesus, I'm close by, and I'm going to be a part of whatever Jesus is doing, whatever he thought he could do. And then I would imagine that uh, um, you start to see things turn a little bit. He would see all this anger and hatred and rage towards Jesus begin to be a little bit more threatening, a little more scary. He didn't quite know what he was getting himself into. 
And then it says in John that as Peter was warming himself by a charcoal fire in the courtyard, that's when they start to notice him. Hey, weren't you the guy? Weren't you the guy? Aren't you the guy? Weren't you a follower of Jesus? And three times he says, no, I wasn't. No, I wasn't. And he denies them all three times. And he even says that he rained down curses. But the translation was said that he actually rains down curses on Jesus. It's like, oh, no, that guy? That guy's this. That guy's that. No, I never followed him to really prove his point that he wasn't a follower and disciple of Jesus. And there's this point in Luke where, where, man, it's a powerful passage. After he denies him the third time, Jesus turns and looks at Peter. Peter sees him, and he remembers exactly what Jesus had said. And then it says, and Peter went out and wept bitterly. Those had to be bitter, painful tears. The shame, the feeling of a joke, a fraud, a failure had to be unbelievably palpable to him. To have a pit in your stomach that just won't go away. It's hard to be confronted and realize that you're not what you thought you were. It's hard to realize the reality of who you are. It's hard to see yourself in your weakness. It's hard to see yourself that you're not as great as you think you are. It certainly wasn't for me my senior year of high school. They take the, well, they still do. But back then, for the senior year, the beginning of the year, you take your aptitude tests, you know? Trying to help you out. Take your aptitude tests, and then they'll kind of fit you in the profile, and they'll help you understand maybe these are some things based on your personality that you would be good at. These are some things that you can focus on as you begin to make decisions about college and for the rest of your life. So I'm like, absolutely. I'd love to. So I took an aptitude test, and of course, I think I nailed it, you know, as though you can do that with an aptitude test. But I thought, I know I nailed that, and I can't wait to get the results. And it took a few weeks to get the results. So finally the day came, and I was just so excited. Because I couldn't wait for them to tell me the wonders of my personality and the greatness that I was destined for. And so I didn't have the class that they handed the results out in until later in the day. It was a, it was a later period in the day. But some other students that I, some friends of mine did. And so they were opening up their packets and kind of showing them off. And they're like, yeah, you know, it tells me that I'd be a good leader and, and be a good doctor, be a good physician, and be a good lawyer. And I'm like, really? You know, in my head, you? If you're going to be a good doctor and physician, what would I be? Certainly president, you know, great visionary, lord of the universe. And I end up getting to the class, finally get the packet, kind of open it up slowly, pull it out, start reading, and it does not say what I want it to say at all. Quite the opposite. And it basically, and it, it had the parts where it tells you like what you'd be, like your personality type, and then like jobs that would be good for you. And I was reading it down, and it basically boiled it down to, this person would struggle in any leadership position and not feeling overwhelmed. It's best for them to have responsibilities that have predictable, simple results. <laughs> and so I scrolled down, I just, or scrolled, I looked down at these jobs and one just popped out that was devastating. It said that one of the jobs you'd be really good at is a parking lot attendant. <laughs> so I remember sitting there thinking, based on my personality profile, I can only handle enough responsibility to sit in a chair next to a bunch of cars. 
that's, that's what I, you know, and I'm devastated. I'm like, it was not what I was expecting whatsoever. And I went through the rest of the day just sad, and I'm moping around, and people are like, hey, what was yours? Doctor, physician, lawyer, no big deal. Just lying. You know, it wasn't true. And so finally I got in my car that day, and I drove to my dad's office after school, and I sat down, handed it to him, expecting to be comforted. And uh, he gets down there, and he, he reads parking lot attendant, and he just busts up laughing. <laughs> he thought that was the funniest thing ever. I'm like, Dad, my pain is real. You know, it's like I'm just trying to get him to understand. And he just could not stop laughing. He has not stopped laughing to this day about that. My dad works for the St. Louis Cardinals uh, dub, um, minor league team. It's his retirement job. Loves it. Paid minimum wage. He just loves doing it. He's got a bunch of different little tasks that he does around the stadium. And one of the things that he does is he actually monitors the, uh, uh, the player's parking lot <laughs> during the week. And so I'll call him. And uh, I'm not making any of this stuff. I call him. And I'll say, uh, hey, Dad, what are you doing? He said, oh, just working. Working that parking lot. Apple doesn't fall too far from the tree, does it, boy? <laughs> it doesn't indeed. Parking lot attendant. Doesn't do well in positions of leadership. Devastating. It's not easy to be confronted with who you are. It's not easy to be confronted with something, the truth, that you are far less than what you thought you were. And you aren't what you thought you were. The truth is, we all do that. Why? Because we're sinners. That's what we do. That's what sin does. We all have an image of ourselves that skews reality and hides the truth. We all do. We've been doing that since the garden. If you go back and you look at the fall, we do the same thing Adam and Eve do. We cover ourselves with fig leaves to cover our insecurity, our shame, our nakedness, our fear, our doubt, our guilt. We always do that. We put on a mask and we adopt an image to present to the world. We were originally created to display to the world the image of God, but sin comes in and fractures that, and we choose a whole other image to display to the world. We choose a whole other image to display, and we, try to, we spend all of our time trying to convince the world that that is who we truly are, that we're something other than what we really are, and we're afraid of being exposed. We're afraid of showing chinks in the armor and cracks in the foundation. And so we, we adopt things, and we, we learn, at actually at a very young age, how to go through life wearing a mask and hiding and presenting an image out to the world to get approval or validation. And we all do it, you know. Mine used to be a great preacher. What's yours? Maybe it's to be a great mom or dad. Maybe it is to present to the world that you're the most successful businessman ever. Or that you started a business from the ground up and that is your calling card. That is, your, that is what you remind everybody of. Maybe it's um, trying to be right all the time. To be somebody that people go to when they need answers or questions. And you've always got the wisdom. You've always got the golden ticket. Or maybe it's trying to convince the world that you can actually afford all of those things that you buy. We all do it to some degree. And when that happens, this image we present begins to be our identity. And we know it's our identity based on how we respond whenever that gets attacked. 
Whenever we feel like we're, we're taking some bombs or there's some things that is uh, threatening our ability to present that nice image to the world, things kind of fall apart. And so if your image is to be a great mom or a great dad, a great parent, then what happens when your kids act out in public really bad? <laughs> or what happens if they don't get perfect straight A's? You wonder what other people think about your parenting style or if you're a good enough parent or if you're spending enough time. Or you get laid off from your job and you're embarrassed. Or you're embarrassed in publicly whenever somebody else was right and you were actually found out to be wrong. Or you um, surgically go through every conversation at a social event, you know, when you leave, thinking about all the things that you said. You know, did that person take that right? Maybe I need to clarify. Or maybe I need to try to approach them and make them understand. And we go on and on and on. Truth is, when we're humbled, we often double down. We double down on that image and we never admit when we're right or wrong. We never admit our shortcomings. We never admit our failures. We never admit our weakness. We can't admit our flaws. Or we compare ourselves to others and we say, well, at least I'm not like them. I'm this. We find easy targets to compare ourselves to, to try to find some sort of comfort to deal with our, hum- our hu- ways that we feel humiliated. And all that we're doing when we do these things is that we spend our lives trying to get others to get with our agenda. And we spend our lives trying to get others to be about us, to be about validating us and making us feel secure and worthwhile, which is we're trying to be the ones that are followed. We're trying to be the ones that have everybody follow me. I want my husband to follow me. I want my wife to follow me. I want my kids to follow me. I want them to do what I want, how I want it done. I want them to prop me up. That's what sin comes in and does. So when Jesus comes into your life, we can't truly understand what it means to be his disciple until we're confronted by our desire to be followed by everybody else. Even him. We want him to affirm our agenda and our kingdom. But Jesus calls us to be full disciples with full devotion. In order for that to happen, we have to be humbled at the deepest core of our identity. We have to be stripped of our confidence in ourselves. And we have to be brought to a place where we see our deep need for Jesus. Discipleship isn't about just following him. It's about needing him as well. And we have to, but at the same time, we have to be willing to follow Jesus. We also have to be willing to allow him to show us and allow him to help us see ourselves based on how he sees us, based on how he views us. And we see that just, for instance, in Revelation 3, where Jesus talks to the church at Laodicea. And he says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold but refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. 
Those are hard words. Wretched, pitiable, blind, poor, and naked. Do you consider yourself that way? At the core of who you are, that all those words describe you. It's hard to swallow that. But this is how Jesus does see us. But we have to make a distinction. As even those words kind of hurt a little bit to think about that, you know? Jesus humbles, but he doesn't humiliate. He humbles us, but he doesn't humiliate us. He doesn't say, you're an absolute joke. You're dumb, you're stupid, and you're worthless. He doesn't say those things. He invites us to be comforted by offering us the truth so that we can see how deeply we need him. And whenever we see ourselves in that way, he offers us to find the comfort in him that we search for in everything and everywhere and everybody else. To come as we are and to experience his sweetness. Jesus humbles, but he also comforts. And he comforts Peter. And we see that in John 21. At this point, Jesus had been resurrected. They'd seen Jesus in glimpses and short snapshots. They're waiting. For what? Who knows? But Peter has all of this guilt and all of this shame that, of course, he still felt. Probably didn't talk very much during those days. He just went back to doing what he always did. Went back to his old life. Went back to fishing. And he's fishing one day, and he fishes all night long, and they're throwing their nets on one side of the boat, and they're catching nothing. And I'm sure he's just beating himself up every time he pulls up an empty net. He's like, of course, you know, I'm a failure. I'm a joke. So much self-hatred, so much self-contempt. And then Jesus, from the shore, even though they don't see it, tells him to toss it on the other side. They toss it on the other side, hauling 153 fish towards bursting. And they realize that it's Jesus, and Peter jumps in and swims to the shore. Now, the truth is, if we just stop there for a second, is that when we feel guilty and we feel shame and we feel burdened by our own failures and weakness, we often go back to what seems familiar and we just keep doing it. You know, Netflix, new show to watch. You know, we click the buy it now option on eBay way too many times. And we open a bottle of wine. We blow up at everybody. We clean the house. The truth is we miss Jesus instead of being com- and instead of being comforted, we just settle for numbness. And we try to eke out an existence that tries to get different results from tossing our nets on the wrong side of the boat. But It's in those failures that Jesus is speaking to you and drawing us near. It's in those failures that he's calling us to come and to feast with him. And that's exactly what he does because when Peter gets on the shore, Jesus already has breakfast waiting for him. And when they're done with breakfast, Jesus asks Peter the question. He says, Simon, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Feed my sheep. Second time, Simon, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Tend my lambs. Simon, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. You know all things. Feed my sheep. When he says, you know all things, he's effectively saying, perhaps it's a little bit lost in translation, he's saying, yes, Lord, I love you, but you also know me. You know I'm a failure. You know I love you, and you know me exactly for what I am. 
And it's here in this exchange where we see Jesus bring the comfort to Peter. And we see these first steps of what it means to follow Jesus with your heart and not just your feet. We see three things. The first is that, why does he ask Peter three times, do you love me? Well, Peter had denied him three times. So he asks him three times. He's giving Peter an opportunity to repent. And this is the thing about repentance. It is not an apology. Repentance is not an apology. It's turning away from sin and seeking to undo the effects that have been caused by your sin. Think of Zacchaeus, tax collector. Jesus comes and he repents. And what's he do? He gives all the money back. All the money that he stole and he took, he gives it back. Would he really be following Jesus if he said, no, I'm going to hang on to this? Nobody shows that he wants to go down a different route and undo the damage that he had done. And the reason why repentance is important is because it allows us to see the damage that we've done and to, to the best of our ability, bring justice and righteousness where it needs to be. And if we're unwilling to kind of, if we just kind of offer apologies, then we never really see the damage and destruction that our sin causes. Which if we never really see the damage and destruction our sin causes, then we miss our sin, which means we miss our Savior. Because if we don't have that big of a problem, then why would we go to Jesus? It's in repentance that we have the opportunity to see the damage, but also to be a part of the healing process. What might that look like for you? Just off the top of my head. Well, or just one quick thing. What would, look, what would happen in your marriage if you went to your spouse and you said, I'd like to know the hurts that you carry with you that I've caused and I've never really repented of? What hurts have I caused you that I don't even know about? I want you to tell me. How healing would that be? The second thing we see is Jesus' use of the name Simon. Well, that was Peter's first name. And then when Peter, Jesus comes along, he says, Simon, now I'm going to call you Peter. And he gave him a new name. But this time he calls him Simon. And it's the fact that in repentance, a fresh start is happening. Simon. Let's start over. Do you love me? Do you love me? The past is gone. Come and follow me. Forgiveness often can be, you know, forgiveness of Jesus can be simple, but it's powerful. The power of the gospel in knowing that those past sins are forgiven and there's a true fresh start is a powerful thing. If you just think about your New Testament, half of it, over half of it, is written by a murderer, Paul. One who knew tremendous failure and knew tremendous forgiveness and grace and tenderness of Jesus. Repentance is a new beginning. Discipleship begins at that new beginning. And thirdly, Jesus says, feed my sheep. The essence of our discipleship is that it's not just for your benefit. Your forgiveness is also for the benefit of others. Because what happens when we actually begin to see ourselves as Jesus sees us, we see us in our bankruptcy towards him, and we see how tender and forgiving he is, that begins to shape our identity and who we are, which then also shapes our relationships with others, because now I'm not comparing myself to you all the time. I'm not trying to judge you in my heart to make myself feel better. I'm not comparing myself to you or protecting my reputation and how you view me or having to seek validation. 
I can admit when I'm wrong and not have it feel like it's a death to have to get the words out. Our forgiveness is also for others. It doesn't seem very radical, does it? The essence of discipleship, perhaps, being humbled and comforted. and Maybe it doesn't seem very revolutionary that Jesus would allow us to repent and undo the wrongs that uh, we've done. Maybe it doesn't sound very revolutionary to um, have a fresh start because of forgiveness. And we can often say, yeah, you know, forgiveness happens. You know, I know I'm forgiven by Jesus. I know I'm a sinner. But when that grabs your heart and the core of who you are, that is powerful. It is powerful. And we know that because after this, Peter is a new man. He's a completely changed man. If you think about it, Peter would have hated Paul. When Paul comes along with all this revelation, Peter would have been like, he would have hated him. Had not this moment happened, had not his humbling happened and to understand his identity in Jesus now, he just would have hated Paul. You weren't a part of the 12. You would have compared their ministries, how many churches they planted. But he's not that man. Because in Galatians, Paul confronts Peter when he's being hypocritical. And Peter, in that moment, loves Jesus more than himself. And he says, yeah, you're right. And he confesses and he repents. And he turns back to Jesus. But before, he just would have been angry and compared himself and wouldn't have listened. Had he not been humbled and comforted in Jesus. The second thing is that in the book of Mark, which scholars, it's pretty clear that Peter wrote the book of Mark. Mark penned it for him. But it's his story, his ministry, that produces the book of the gospel, one of the very first ones. And in that, if it is Peter, and I think there's something pretty fascinating about it, this change that's happened in him, is because he makes his denial of Jesus very clear in the book. But he doesn't include his restoration. He doesn't include John 21 and what happened. He doesn't even talk about it. He just talks about his failure. He just talks about the ways that he's messed up. Now, if he hadn't have been humbled, then maybe he would have just talked about all the, all the, his restoration, all the amazing things he did in his ministry. But he doesn't. But he does include one thing. He includes this part where Mary sees Jesus at the tomb. And then Jesus says, Mary, go and tell the disciples and tell Peter that I'm coming for him. And I'm coming to meet him. And the significance of that is that Peter doesn't write his own redemption and restoration about himself. He didn't even take the time to do that. He doesn't need to compare himself and make sure that everybody knows that, you know, from the rest of time that he was restored and that, you know, he really wasn't that bad of a guy. No, he focuses on his failure, and then what he does is he actually has that invitation where Jesus says, go and tell Peter. What's he doing? He's pointing not to himself. He's pointing to a redeemer that still pursues the most worthless and vile sinners and betrayers of him. That even Jesus, after Peter, was, Peter betrayed him, he says, tell Peter, I'm coming to him. He points to a redeemer and not himself. And lastly, he gets to a place where he was willing to go where he wasn't before. That when he understood who he was and he found strength in understanding his forgiveness that he has in Jesus, he goes to a cross, which is where he wasn't willing to go before. He said he was, but he wasn't. He wouldn't follow Jesus to his cross like he said he would. But after this point, verses 18 and 19 is a, prop, is a foreshadowing to Peter of what would happen. 
he does end up going to a cross for the sake of Jesus. He does end up following Jesus to the cross, and they tell him, you're going to be crucified. And legend has it that he says, that's fine, but crucify me upside down. I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Savior. That's power. Something grabbed a hold of his heart to where he could face death as a comforted man, willingly, knowing who his identity is in Jesus. This sermon series, Jesus is calling you to follow him again. Maybe it's a fresh beginning, it's one that you want and you need. But maybe it's got to, you have to recognize that you do need to be humbled, we all do, and, but you will also be comforted. And maybe you've looked to, and tried to meet with Jesus uh, in all the wrong ways. You've tried to meet with Jesus out of your own strength, you know? Whenever you feel humbled and like a failure and ashamed, you just try harder, you read your Bible, you pray more, you serve a little bit in church, but it doesn't seem to really do it. Maybe it's because that's not where Jesus wants to meet you, per se. Maybe he wants to meet you somewhere else, just like he did Peter. The book of John says that Peter betrayed Jesus in front of a charcoal fire. And then it says in John 21 that when, Jesus, when he came up to the shore, Jesus had prepared a charcoal fire for him. That Peter met Jesus at the one place that would remind him of his biggest failure. And there, Peter, or Peter heard Jesus say, I see you just as you are, and I love you, and I want you to follow me. What charcoal fires might he want to meet you at? And it's there you will experience the sweetness and gentleness of Jesus. Or are you willing to go? Are you willing to follow? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your goodness to us. And we thank you that you see us in our weakness. You see us in our inability to close that gap between you and us. We ask that you would remind us that as we'd have your freedom today in how you see us, that we don't always have it all together and that we are truly bankrupt. Every good thing we have is not from us, it's from you. And that truly we are helpless in this world apart from your grace. We ask that you would strengthen us to be disciples that follow you with our whole heart, that we would be willing to be comforted in our failure but also humble. We ask that you would meet us at this table and that you would nourish us to follow after you. We ask all these things in your name.